Hey everybody, it's Anti-Monitor time again. Somehow, Gene Roddenberry's ghost has conjured yet another space voyage, so we've decided to look back at 2013's convoluted Star Trek Into Darkness. But wait, there's more. Summer's almost over, so we're going to discuss the box office hits, misses, and the few left on the horizon. So strap into the captain's chair, because there's a con artist on the loose. You're listening to Anti-Monitor from Doomrocket.com. I knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. I'm not even going to dignify myself with a response to that. That's right. Welcome back to Anti-Monitor. My name's Matt, Birdman Fleming. And across from me is Jared Jones, editor-in-chief of Doomrocket.com and the first officer of my personal friendship. Oh, I get it. Because we're talking about... uh, yeah. Space movies. Space movies. And friendship. Yeah, you know, I, I consider you the Spock to my Kirk. What? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wait, why am I Spock? Well, have you looked at your eyebrows lately? Oh, okay, that's enough. Oh, hey, I didn't say your ears were pointy. Yeah, at the very least. That's right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, we're we in the middle of summer. Um, mm-hmm. We've got a Star Trek, another yeah. Star Trek around the corner. I you know, I, I'm not against the idea of there th- being three new Star Trek movies, but I guess we can get into that in a little bit. Uh, so with that coming out this week, mm. it's you know gonna throw its dice out and see if it can make some money because Clickety this clack. This yeah, exactly. Roll the bones. This summer's been kind of kind of whack. Yeah. Overall. Yeah, really lackluster. There's not been one huge thrilling like piece of new material. Yeah. Um, so, and is there even anything on the horizon that's going to really wow people? Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. All we got left that, uh, is of any uh, significance, I would say, is Jason Bourne. Which, by the way, Uh. I'm still pissed that it's not called Bourne Again. Oh, man, that would have been pretty sweet. Or how about Jason Bourne, Bourne Again? That's any combination thereof. Yeah, uh, as brought to you by Canon Pictures. (laughs) Um, But then, of course, we got the new Star Trek Beyond, which I love that title. Yeah. I think it's a great title. Um, And then Suicide Squad, uh, uh, but we've already provided more than enough ample airtime to that. So uh, what we can do now is go back. Let's go back. Gotta go back in time. Doc, you tell me you built a time machine out of a podcast? Oh. You like that? I like that. Yeah. Um, Of course, the summer movie season typically kicks off uh, the first week of May now. Because I guess next year it'll just get... Zack Snyder really wanted to start with Donna Justice. He really did. The nerve of this guy. Like March 25th is summer. There's yeah. still snow on the ground. Not all of us have the luxury of living in California, Mr. Snyder. Well, you know what Zack Snyder always says. Hmm. If there's snow on the ground, play ball. Oh, sure. Anyway, so of course the first film that kicked off our summer movie season was Marvel Studios' Civil War. Sorry, Tommy. You know I wouldn't do this if I had any other choice. But he's my friend. So was I. Now this is uh, uh was it set the tone because it was huge, it was big, it was moderately topical, it was fun. That being the objective word, but it was not nothing new. 
we didn't see anything inherently novel here um, beyond seeing uh, two studios, that being Marvel Studios and Sony, learning how to play with their toys, uh, which sets a precedent, I hope, uh, for next year or in the years to come with Fox, and with their X-Men uh, uh, properties, and Fantastic Four more specifically, with Marvel Studios. But yeah, we got to see Spidey fight Captain America. So That was, that was pretty much the highlight of my summer cinema scene. It remains the highlight of my summer uh, cinema scene. There, there are a couple of other examples. We'll get to those in a minute. But to uh, reach back into the Doom Rocket archives, we have a little snippet from uh, uh, our review. Would you like to hear that? I would like to hear that. Um, who, 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 uh, who wrote this review? Oh, that was me. Uh, Dr. Jared Jones. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Um, so, so, And this is from the Doom Rocket review of Civil War. Civil War's core mission is to justify its superhero fisticuffs. There's a topicality at play. Cap needs to conform to the world's shifting views on globe-trotting superheroes at the peril of himself, and his friends are either far too loyal or are complete and utter liabilities, but it's all in service to the why of it all. Sure, it touches on societal fears of world terror and the violent responses from our would-be guardians, but only just so. Civil War doesn't linger on these ideas for too long, not because it can't handle the material, but because there's a churning engine inside this movie that needs to be fed, and its diet doesn't call for sociopolitical allegory. Ooh, damn. Yeah. So uh, that rated from us an 8.5 out of 10, which I am sorry to say is the highest score you're going to see from any of these movies for this recap. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think you're too sorry to say that. We peaked, and now it's just, I don't know, it's been a slow climb ever since. Um, it's kind of a, a slug. If you will. Yeah. Now, here's the issue with Captain America Civil War. What? Monetarily speaking. Yeah. Uh, it racked up $406 million. Okay? That's domestic. That's domestic. On a budget of approximately $250 million. That's sweet cherry. And so, you know, that's still like, you're paying, you know, Marvel and, you know, whatever uh, help studio, you know, Sony maybe chipped in. Uh, Disney put a lot of money into this summer. And how much did it make worldwide, Bird? Worldwide. $1.1 billion. That's a nice sauce. That's a very nice sauce. That's a spicy sauce. You know where that sauce is going? Straight to the cryogenically frozen corpse of Walt Disney. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, there's like that one Disney employee mm -hmm. who, who their job is every time money comes, comes in, in, he goes and... All in your service, Master. To the, you know, frozen corpse of... To the sarcophagus of Walt sarcophagus Disney. Sarcophagus of yeah, Walt sure. Disney. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, uh, there's definitely some Raiders, uh, ending of Raiders going on in the Disney archives for sure. Um, moving ahead, uh, the next film that we covered uh, for the summer movie season was The Nice Guys, which was the first Shane Black uh, summer film that came out since Marvel Studios' Iron Man 3. You're in the pool! Yeah. Why? I had to question the mermaids. What were you doing while I was working? Kyle King wrote the review for this one, Bird. You know Kyle King. Oh, great friends with Kyle King. Yeah. I call him the King of Kyles. Uh, yeah, I, that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. He is the King of Kyles. Although, uh, not to besmirch our other fine uh, member of the Doom Rocket team, Mr. Kyle Homer, if you're listening to this, we love you too. He is a prince. He is a prince. Kyle had this to say about Shane Black's The Nice Guys. Quote, as the two not-so-nice guys investigate a missing person's case, they begin to find themselves in increasingly not-so-nice company. In a loving ode to seedy 1970s Los Angeles, 
porn, drugs, and tacky sports coats, there is the backdrop in Shane Black's slapstick with sunglasses. It's Blues Brothers meets Chinatown, with plenty of Ryan Gosling screaming like a goat in between. Which is the total God's honest truth. Ryan Gosling, he, like, he squeals so much throughout this movie. It's like, Crow's the straight man, Gosling's the uh, uh, Jerry Lewis, and it's just... It, 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 he liked it a lot more than I did, I'll put it this way. Kyle gave it a rating of 8.5 out of 10, which actually matches, not exceeds, my review for Civil War. But how did uh, the nice guys do over at the box office, Bert? Well, it did not fare so well. No? Um, no. Uh, oh, no. On a budget of $50 million. Oh, no. It has only managed to recoup $36 million. Yeah, that's... Uh, that, that's, that's domestic. That's No, that's everything. Oh, my God. That's $37 million, that's it? That's it. God damn. Uh, well, you have to consider, this isn't an international movie. This isn't a movie that's getting shipped off to China. Yeah. They have no clue what uh, an, a Los Angeles is. <laughs> you know, they, they, they can't get behind this the way that they can get behind guys in mech armor yeah, and, sure. you know, punching monsters. And I guess like they don't that. have Formica back in the 70s over in China. No, they just now got Formica. Oh, damn. So this, that would be like more of a current piece for them. Well, that's too bad for nice guys. Moving on right ahead, we've got another Marvel movie, this time Fox Marvel movie, X-Men Apocalypse. Well, what does this make? The 10th X-related movie, mm, approximately? Yeah, let's say ish. I know the number, not off the top of my head, and I don't care enough to look it up. Well, <laughs> X-Men Apocalypse, it did all right. It, how did it do money-wise, Bird? Uh, worldwide, mm. it made $533 million. Worldwide? Worldwide. That's not a lot. That's not. Compared uh, it's, I mean, it's half half what uh, the Civil War. I almost called it Avengers 3. Th- you might as well. Have, might as well. Uh, Avengers 2.5. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, it didn't do so well critically insofar as Doom Rocket's concerned. I wrote this review feel really weird reading my own reviews on the air. Should I? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, I knew it. I knew these feelings were true. Anyway, quote, this is what I'm saying, by the way. Even though there's plenty of lip service paid to how cool malls were, how fun Miss Pac-Man actually is, and how sweet the Eurythmics used to be, X-Men Apocalypse's period setting, complete with hat tips to Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and Rush, only serves to get into the movie's way. And it really gets in the movie's way once a certain X-Men makes their painfully obvious and wholly unnecessary cameo. Remember, the internet was still years and years away, but that doesn't stop Oscar Isaac's titular villain from somehow finding a way to tap into the World Wide Web to discover that <gasps> humanity had let the world go to seed. How does he do it? By the power of television. End quote. So yeah, man. Wait, so Apocalypse turns television into the internet. Look, you seem like a nice guy. I'm going to help you out here. So what happens in X-Men Apocalypse, and I'm not making this up. So um, Apocalypse is a, uh, a mutant that lived back in ancient Egypt. There was a coup against him and his four horsemen in the Apocalypse, and he was buried deep underneath uh, this gigantic pyramid in Cairo for centuries. He comes back to life, um, starts to assemble the newest iteration of his four horsemen, comes across Storm, Aurora Monroe in Cairo. Um, 
He doesn't know really what's going on. He just walked through a Cairo marketplace, so he's just making this natural assumption that humanity is turned to another god, that being of the almighty Buck. So what he does is he touches a TV in Cairo, by the way. Um, we're, they're in a hut somewhere where I don't see any plugs. But the TV turns on, and from that, he sees everything that's happened in the world since we had television. Like, he sees the Kennedy assassination. He sees Reagan, you know, <laughs> tossing tremendous shade at Gorbachev. He sees satellites up in the sky. He sees a massing uh, war between the U.S. and the Soviets. It's, it's dumb. But not as dumb as the Wolverine cameo. Sorry to spoil it for you. But Weapon X makes a very unnecessary cameo in this movie. Fuck this movie. I gave it a, uh, what did I give it? A 4.5 out of 10. This That's generous. It was generous, especially the more I think about it. I, this movie really bummed me out. Everything they've built will fall. And from the ashes of their world, we'll build a better one. Yeah, you know, I, I care so little about this movie, mm. which is a shame because I loved apocalypse yeah the actual character sure. in the comic books one of the few comic book runs i ever got screwed into oh uh, you're age. an age of apocalypse I was an age guy. of apocalypse guy. Yeah. but i was like a late 90s hey man x-men it was know. a dark time for everybody it's true so what's next on the docket next on the docket uh coming up next ninja turtles out of the shadows oh god a sequel to ninja turtles that happened really fast two years now, you could tell that was rushed because you look at the trailers to this thing and the turtles don't look done. They look more fake than they did in the animated series. Like these, They're just not convincing to me. I'm st I've still yet to hear a convincing argument as to why they can't use animatronics as they did back in the 90s. Because those turtles looked infinitely more convincing to whatever the fuck I'm looking at on the, uh, on the big screen. Um, Kyle, who is a trooper forever, wrote his review. And you know what? He liked it. Like, he legitimately liked it. I talked to him online before we posted the review and got his feelings about it. And it's, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with somebody who's feeling joy. Mm -hmm. And who are we to keep joy from people? Especially if uh, you don't particularly agree with them. Just let, let people have fun. I, I don't think, think there's anything wrong with letting people have fun. I like fun. I've seen you have fun once. Occasionally, I, I certainly don't try to take fun away from people. No, you're not. You're not a joy thief. A joy thief. What? What did? Uh, what did Kyle have to say about the? Because you and I mm. very famously uh, we took apart the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes. Uh, Michael Bay produced. Bullet. That was one of the earliest iterations of Anti Monitor, which you can find on DoomRocket.com. Spoilers: It's not in audio. Sorry, guys. Uh, but hopefully you know how to read out there. Yeah. Uh, so read to us what yes. Kyle had to say. Uh, quote, Because the adrenaline-spiked fun that comes with shooting manhole covers out of a garbage truck and jumping from airplane to airplane at 36,000 feet is exactly how we played with our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figures, what is the big problem, fanboys? Is it possible older fans have completely forgotten how to cowabunga? Have we become too shell-shocked to the idea of growing older? Out of the Shadows promises more fun with our beloved Turtle Brothers if and only if you're open to the idea of openly having fun with them in the first place. If you loosen up, sit back, and let it wash over you, you'll find your inner child might be the better for it. End quote. That's good. I like that. You like his little uh, little, uh, oh, little puns in there? Of course I do. Kyle's a... I'm a puntastic man myself. He's a surgeon when it comes to these things. I love him. Uh, you know, 
really uh, what he made me think of is all the adults who hate on uh, the new Ninja Turtle stuff mm-hmm. are the same adults who go and spend $30 on uh, artisanal pizza yeah. and poo-poo uh, all over Domino's and Pizza Hut and the stuff that gave them toys when they were kids. Yeah, biting the hand that fed their childhood. People are fucking hypocrites. You know what really drives me nuts about fanboys these days is that they forgot where they came from. Yeah. The Ninja Turtles movie that they seem to love so damn much that came out back in 89, guess who was the major league sponsor of that thing? Pizza Hut. That's right. And guess where we went to get our Ninja Turtles exclusive action figures from? Pizza Hut. So I don't want to hear from people. There's a chance that it make us human. We're turtles, whether you like it or not. Moving right along. Um, there were a couple of movies. We skipped a week, actually, mm-hmm. um, uh, and missed a good chunk of movies. One horror movie, one action movie, and one children's film, The Conjuring 2, Warcraft, and Finding Dory. Now, um, seeing as though we don't have any reviews to read about these, all I have is the response that the people at large said in our Rotten Tomato scores. And not a whole bunch of them did great. Not surprisingly, the Pixar film was the most critically lauded. How did these movies do box office-wise, Bert? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start with Warcraft. Warcraft. $432 million worldwide. That's not bad. That's a shock. That Duncan Jones done good. That's uh, fine. No, never even considered seeing that movie. Ne- well, neither did I. Uh, Conjuring 2 worldwide, mm. $300 million. That's a sequel to a very successful franchise that seems to be waning now. James waning? James Wanning. Oh, I see. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm going Poor to help thing. that one. But now, Finding Dory, let me guess. It's a Pixar movie. It's Disney. Let me guess. It's already made a billion dollars, and they're making a Finding Dory's idiot daughter. You know, surprisingly, it has not made it to the billion mark. Well, I guess it hasn't been out that long. But it's been the... out. It's been At this point, it's been out for a month. Oh, okay. And worldwide, it's made... Where's she at? $723 million dollars that's still insane to me this is the big thing Mm. foreign markets 276 domestic 447 so that means all of the people in america who i don't know what 10 years ago was that when finding nemo came out sure uh all of those people now in america went to see finding dory to get that shot of adrenaline in their arm that's sweet sweet black tar nostalgia to remind them that they are in fact alive and can experience joy yeah or to numb the pain of a an ever collapsing society i guess well here's the crazy thing kids that went to see finding nemo are now taking their kids to see finding dory because they had kids right out of high school but that's not the point that's just insane to me that um pixar could just sleep on a franchise or a potential franchise for so long and then just fart out a movie and it makes enough money because Disney's brand is that omnipresent. Jeez Louise, could you imagine if they came out with a respectable sequel to The Incredibles? Oh, it's in the works. Brad Bird's locked in. He's doing it. I I have nothing but faith in the man. I'm not going to talk about Tomorrowland. That's in the past. Um, <laughs> That's yesterday's news. I'm looking at the future right now. I'm looking at Incredibles 2. So that, good for Finding Dory. The more money, the better for yeah. me. So, of course, um, there's only maybe one or two I want to talk about before we get to our big enchilada today. Um, one I want to get out of the gate. 
definitely is Ghostbusters. But we could have talked about the BFG, or we could have talked about Purge, the GOP convention, or we could have talked about the Legends of Tarzan, but I think they're all sort of incidental to the big to-do that was put around this one singular film. Ghostbusters by Paul Feig. Now, Bert, tell me, how is Ghostbusters doing as of this week? Uh, as of right now, they're sitting at uh, 69 million overall, worldwide. Okay. Uh, decent opening, uh, 46 million. Mm-hmm. Better probably than a lot of people expected. Yes. Uh, and then, I mean, it's only been out for less than a week. so It's not the hit that Sony needs it to be. Sony has been frantically searching for its next big franchise. They do not know how to market their films. The marketing campaign for Ghostbusters is a huge qualifier for that. I think a huge source of this disgusting vitriol that culminated in Leslie Jones leaving Twitter today, of all things. Um, Yeah, you didn't hear about that? So many disgusting animals just like lambasting her with racist tweets, all coming from this one movie. If... I, I don't blame marketing departments on people's basis natures, but you have to, you you just watch those trailers, and it's enough to make people see red, because they were really bad. Oh, those trailers were terrible. Just objectively the worst thing you could have seen this year, outside of an amazing Spider-Man trailer, you know? It was, mm-hmm. They just looked bad. Sony needs to fire whoever's working in there and start fresh, build from the ground up again, because it's not working. But I'm happy to report... I got to review Ghostbusters, and I liked it. That's great news. It's amazing news because I walked in with the expectations on the ground. All they had to do was clear the hurdle that I left, and that was a low hurdle, but they did clear it, and they cleared it with a bit of a panache, a little Hmm. aplomb. I was going to say aplomb. Yeah. So um, I'm going to read a small segment of the review I posted just this last Friday for uh, Ghostbusters. And quote, No, Paul Feig did not set out to ruin anybody's fond memories of Ghostbusters, and if he did, then there's now absolutely zero doubt that he completely missed the mark. Sorry, dudes. 2016's Ghostbusters may not live up to whatever inane expectations you conjured up in a fit of self-righteous indignation, but it never had to, it was never going to, and in a very empowering way, it's a better movie because it doesn't even try to. Paul Feig's Ghostbusters sets out on its own path, steering this dusty old franchise to new and encouraging directions while fondly tipping its hat to what came before. And, for the record, it's decidedly more cohesive and enjoyable than Ghostbusters 2. This is what it looks like when a reboot actually works. End quote. And I laid a score of 7.5 out of 10. I might have been a little too generous on that. I might have given it a 7 in reality. But my bottom line on that flick is... Go see it. It ain't a high watermark in this uh, summer, but I think as we just established, there were few high marks this summer. So any shining lights are the ones you want to follow. That's true. This has been a weird summer. Yeah. Um, two of the three highest grossing movies this summer are animated films about animals. Yeah. So it just goes to show that uh, the kids are happy. Mm-hmm. Kids are going to go have fun. Yeah, the kids are all right. Uh, but apparently the grown-ups need to lighten up a little bit oh when it my comes God. to summertime. Parents got to go. Kevin, can you answer the phone? I can't. It's in the fish tank. The one on the desk. Oh, that one. Uh, What's the place called again? Conductors of the Metaphysical Examination. Got it. Ghostbusters. So, again, this week we've got the third J.J. Abrams produced Star Trek film. Yes. Uh, And it, you know, it's coming with a big lump in its throat, Mm -hmm. which is the 
tragic and untimely accidental death of Anton Yelchin. Yes, it's big loss for the the form. I Absolutely. Mean, who, who knew what kind of th- stuff this kid could have gotten gotten himself into in the years to come? Oh, he was already he was already flooring people with Green Room this year. Green Room, I loved him in Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, I mean, and and not only that, but playing Chekhov in these Star Trek films, that's a pretty thankless task. He was pretty much the the, uh, tongue-in-cheek, you know, we're we're all-inclusive thing that Roddenberry was very insistent upon, uh, especially during the Cold War. So having Chekhov there, being played as reverently as Yelchin did, uh, I'm very grateful to him, and I am sorry to see him gone. However we may feel about the... Trailers for Star Trek Beyond. Mm. Um, I got high hopes for it, partially because it's co-written by Simon Pegg. That's a big plus compared to the three jackholes who wrote this stinker we're about to talk about today. Now, shall we begin? Uh, You and I actually saw this movie in theaters. We did. We walked and talked, as we often do. Mm Mm-hmm. We found ourselves in uh, a little establishment that served adults' beverages. We went to the the Green Eye. And that's right. We went to night. the Green Eye. That was yeah. our uh, for a while. That was like a our stop on the way home. Yeah. So we could sort some things out. I used to write full reviews in there on a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. I, I miss that place. Star Trek Into Darkness. Mm. Um, it should be called Star Trek. Just a little bit into space and then immediately back to Earth. Yeah, they don't really leave the galaxy. No, they... Uh, well, I mean, they go to Kronos, but we'll get into that yeah. in a minute, but fucking cares. Uh, <laughs> how did you... Wow. Yeah. You know, that is kind of how I feel after watching this movie again. I hadn't watched it since it came out. Yeah, me neither. And uh, that's so kind of how I feel. I feel like we just, we just sat through two plus hours of... Uh, it's a lot of meh. Like, I almost feel like I have nothing to say. You're going to have to ask me questions here. (laughs) That's the only way I'm going to walk through this. Here's my first question. I can't wait. How did you feel about the first J.J. Abrams produced and directed Star Trek reboot? Now, I was a big booster for it, primarily because it was just nice to see Star Trek back in the multiplexes. I am, as you know, a big Trekkie. Have been a good chunk of my entire life. Star Trek was big in my home when I was a kid. Next Generation, particularly, you know that me and MJ are currently rewatching the entire series all the Lucky way through. Lucky you. Oh, man, it's so good. I love The Next Generation. Fucking get on that. And I can't wait to watch the seg from uh, Next Generation to Deep Space Nine. Like, I was too young to pay attention, but so many cast members hopped over there, mm-hmm. and I want to see the magic happen. You know, but anyway, um, the movies were not great. I think the last objectively okay Star Trek movie that came out in theaters was First Contact, which we will discuss on this show one day provided you can you convince me to watch an even worse one like the films that followed it like insurrection or even god help us nemesis having said all of this plowing through those movies and trying to justify your love to the uninitiated was almost an impractical task but then jj abrams came along with his plasticine zeal and his faux spielbergian zeal and and said, look, we lens can make... Lens flares. And, the, and his lens flares. We can make this young. We can make it, God help me for using this word, hip, and all that other bullshit. But it did turn out to be a pretty entertaining, if not tone-deaf movie 
when you compare it to Gene Rod- Roddenberry's original intent. No, the uh, the J.J. J. J. Abrams' first foray into Star Trek, he took what is at its core a very straightforward, borderline boring concept. But no, I love it. I love Star Trek. But Star Trek is not action. It's an intergalactic civics lesson. It's And if you look at the genre, action slash adventure... Mm-hmm. This, this is an adventure. An adventure. Yes. An adventure series. He made it an action movie. He made it into like a music video. Yeah. With a lot of, of too much action. But that first one was fun. Yes. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but you forgive it because it's big, dumb, and fun summer blockbuster. Right. Uh, and so everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people were excited to see where J.J. Uh, Abrams would go next. He went full lost on this motherfucker. He lost his damn mind. <laughs> uh, this is the pinnacle of uh, what's wrong with the J.J. Abrams mystery box mm-hmm. as seen on hey, TED Talk. Throw, I'm throwing the truncheon in right now. I've had it. I've had it with critics bringing it up. I mentioned it in my review for Force Awakens. I'm tired of J.J. Abrams being famous for this concept, which is just a fundamental tenet of good storytelling. No, you don't want to reveal everything at first. That's just storytelling 101. J.J. Abrams did not teach us anything inherently novel here. He just reminded us it existed, provided that anyone needed to be reminded of it in the first place. I can't stand J.J. Abrams sometimes. People, I remember when Super 8 was coming out. And people were talking about how like he was the second coming of Steven Spielberg. And I was like, the dude's not even the second coming of like... You're, you're thinking Ron Howard. Okay, no. I put J.J. Abrams on the same platform as Ron Howard. Except when J.J. Abrams was in TV, he was not nearly as charming. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, J.J. didn't have that Opie moment. No, didn't no have, he didn't. Nor, nor did he have uh, too many happy days. Yeah. So, like, of course, he had a hand in the story for this movie, I, I guess, as he does with all the movies that he produces. But he left screenwriting chores in the hands of the lost uh, uh, writer's room, I guess. Uh, Robert Orsi, uh, what's his name? Alex Robert. Kurtzman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, one of my most dreaded and least favorite screenwriters working today, Damon Lindelof, who somehow convinced the world that he was far more brilliant than he actually is. Did you ever watch Lost? Uh, I watched it on occasion. I uh, didn't. I never really. I didn't get past the, the the pilot, and I, and I have friends to this day say, "Oh, it's a mistake. You got to watch the whole damn thing." I'm like, "Do I? Do I? Do I really need to?" Because I've been punished time and again for the success of Lost cinematically ever since. Do I need to even bring up Prometheus right now? I was Does actually need... going to do that myself. Yeah, let's just not do that. Let's just <laughs> save that for an episode suffice, later. Suffice it to say. Damon Lindelof is uh, really challenging with his material and the way he brings it up over and over and over again. And he's so Mm self-serious. He's a pretentious... I'm not going to call him a name. I'm sorry. Star Trek Into Darkness is an overwrought, convoluted uh, think piece Mm -hmm. about... uh, (laughs) Post-9-11 domestic terrorism. And... This is where it fails ultimately 
As a Star Trek movie. As a Star Trek movie, it's it tries to overcomplicate things, and it tries to it it, it there's way too much death. There's yeah. way too much. It's Man of Steel level death. Yeah. Um, and very simple thing: the bad guy needs to be the bad guy. In this movie, uh, they give Khan all of these reasons to s- sympathize with mm-hmm. him. Well, let, before we get too deep into the story beats, let's let, let's uh, let's broach the casting of, of the character and give this some context. Okay. Uh, for the, those kids who may be lucky enough to have never seen this flick. My crew is my family, Kirk. Is there anything you would not do for your family? Arguably, the most famous Star Trek movie in the world. What is it? It's called Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Exactly right. Wrath of Khan, not exactly the best movie in the history of the world, but it did something monumental with the Star Trek lore. And it did something heretofore, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Blasphemous. By killing off one of its major characters. Now, this is where we're going into real spoiler territory here, kids. So if you haven't seen it in darkness, one, congratulations, and two, uh, you've been warned. So for the longest time, J.J. Abrams' mystery box conceit was to obscure the production of Into Darkness from prying eyes. Um, All we knew is that Benedict Cumberbatch was cast in the film, and we didn't know who he was going to play, but it was pretty uh, clear that he was going to be the villain. Why? He's got the voice. Very lithe body, so he, you know... He can move. He, he can move, but he doesn't have, like, a, a, a domineering presence like Eric Bana, who's fucking huge, uh, back in Star Trek 1. Right. So, like, but who's he gonna play? And then we hear his name, uh, his character's name, which is really, really innocuous. John Harrison. John Harrison, so it's like, oh, was he George's little kid? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's from London, I guess, I don't know. The other thing about uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it's hard for me to unsee it, mm. he just looks enough like uh, an alien-human hybrid mm. to mm. pass as human, uh, especially in this movie. He looks like you know that movie Splice. You remember that movie yes. Splice? Uh, you know the car- uh, the alien girl. Oh, I do. Like, he looks like her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like if they had spliced an alien's version of a horse <laughs> with... Um, a, oh, you mean a space horse. A, a clean-shaven uh, uh, 20-something uh, dandy fop, you would get Benedict Cumberbatch. When Benedict Cumberbatch is... You, saying it weird. When Benedict Cumberbatch's <laughs> hair is slicked back the way the way it is in this movie. Is it botch or batch? I I always say batch okay, because I'm a that's botch. how it's spelled. I'm a botch. Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, batch, botch, tomato, potato. He looks just enough like uh, a, an enhanced human. Yeah. Which is basically what, what they've is. turned him into. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so with him as the villain, as the heavy, we get the first trailer. And of course, it's him with his deep baritone just booming in our ears. To me, it kind of sounded vaguely like uh, uh, Patrick Stewart for a minute. I was like, wait, they put Picard in this motherfucker? <laughs> but no, it was Benedict Cumberbatch, and of course, I should have heard it the, the entire time. The big secret, the big reveal, we're just going to get this right out of the way because this is how stupid it is. He's not John Harrison at all, of formerly of the Beatles. He is gone. 
My name is Khan. And that's the thing, is he introduces himself just, My name is Khan. No, dramatic pause in between oh. is and Khan. And then there's a beat where the camera stays on him, and then the, the horns blare, and... Kirk, you can see the look on his face. Like, who the fuck well, is Khan? What's a Khan? I don't care. You're conning me right now. Exactly. It's like, I get trying to appease fanboys. I get it, especially something that is just like kept alive purely by fandom, like Star Trek obviously is. Like, because Paramount was making those movies back in the uh, you know early '80s, '90s, and they weren't making a ton of money, but enough to justify sequels. Of course, this being the second film in the series, you want to pay homage in some weird meta way to Wrath of Khan. That's fine, I suppose, if it's innocuous and it doesn't matter. But to make Star Trek Into Darkness plus or minus the Wrath of Khan, with the exception of the years of storytelling momentum, the code behind it, that's cheap and lousy and lazy very lazy it's like oh he's con and then like people in the audience who just don't give a shit they're like oh i've heard that name before and start eating their popcorn a little more rapturously and but, you know here's the thing uh con in the original continuity mm -hmm. made his first appearance in the tv show yeah back in the 60s ricardo maltabon that's right bro <laughs> and who is just the king of camp yeah uh you know if you've never seen uh, Fantasy Island before, mm -hmm. then you need to correct that. That's why I've always said, like, <laughs> I remember I was on a date once and uh, we were watching uh, Star Trek movies in our early courtship and uh, we were watching Wrath of Khan and I, and, I, and I threw a preamble and I said, now the title's a little misleading because when you hear the word Wrath, you think like Old Testament shit, right? No. It's the kind he he luxuriates in his chair with his like nicely polished fake chest yeah. muscles and <laughs> like his big you know lion's tunic and his flowing silver hair and he kind of seethes at times but the wrath really is to get a, a, a revenge on people that the Federation just kind of blunders into and amounts to the death of Spock. Also. He looks a lot like Tina Turner and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Oh my god, that would be an awesome crossover. But yeah, man, like it's such a bummer to see like <laughs> when you watch Wrath of Khan and just see like Maltabon and that, that get up and you're like, that rules. And then you see Benedict Cumberbatch as this guy yeah. wearing these clothes, having that hair, like, oh my name's Khan too. And it's like shut up. Yeah, he does not look anything like a Khan Nunian Singh. He does, however, look like uh, Sherlock Holmes. I and think... Uh, except this... he's... Except... Oh, now he can jump. It's... Really high. Really high. Yeah. And, like, if you punch him, you gotta punch him a whole lot like before he bunch. starts, like, ton. Like, you gotta set aside time for this. It's like, you hit him and you, you realize what you're up against. You turn to Uhura and you go, contact the bridge, let him know I don't have time for lunch. And get rid of all my appointments for the rest of the afternoon. I'm going to be punching this guy in the face. Oh, tell, and please get me some gloves. Yes, tell Bones that I'm going to need someone to check the bones in my hand. Because <laughs> I think they're going to break. Yeah. And it's like I said during the movie, when uh, when James Kirk is punching him a bunch uh, when they're on Kronos. I'm like, <laughs> I just really wanted Benedict Cumberbatch to look at him and say, What are you trying to do? Kiss me? Oh, yeah. Because, I mean... They could have kissed, I well, suppose. The, I like these love taps. My my. The bottom line with Khan, 
and we can just get off that horse after a bit and talk about other equally dumb things is that I think they borrowed a little too much from the former series continuity. <laughs> um, I, I say that as a pun to be dumb, but also I really mean it. I think that like, ironically enough for a series about space pioneers, this new Star Trek series boldly goes nowhere. Absolutely. I, and I mean that like wholeheartedly, like none of these movies have any s- substance to them at all. Like beyond Star Trek beyond, I have no faith in it. Especially with a director like Justin Lin. It's like, oh, the director of Furious 7, who made the Fast and the Furious movies semi-watchable, is going to do what? Anything's better than this, admittedly. And the initial reviews for Beyond are, are, are okay to whatever. There were, no, they're actually, it's got a, it's sitting at 90% on Rotten that Tomatoes. That means nothing. Well, that means nothing until the re- all the reviews get out. The true. first smattering of them are probably very positive. And I guarantee you that there's some payola involved there with Paramount. I'm not kidding. Like, that's just how that shit happens, um, disgustingly enough. But um, with Beyond, I don't know anything about the plot. I don't want to know anything about the plot. I want to go in there surprised because there was just so much put into the anticipation behind Into Darkness that there was we were only going to be disappointed. But the added insult to watching this movie is just how broken it is as a narrative. It, it just it's so oddly structured. Like the the sequence that culminates with the ending where Kirk gets saved by super blood. They use the word super blood in this movie, by the way. Um, it uh, begins like almost 35 minutes before it. Now, I haven't done this uh, in quite a while, mm. but I would like to try to summarize the plot of this film in the simplest way possible. If you would do it in 50 words or less, I'd be very impressed. <clears throat> Space boss needs make war. Wakes up Superboy... Superboy mad must kill all humans. These guys gotta stop it. Kirk's dead. Psych, super blood. Need new ship. 30 words. That's 30 pretty words. Good, that's right? damn good. Congratulations. That's, I think that's it. That's the plot. That's, that is the plot. That's the whole movie. So, Robocop. Wakes up a Superman yeah. to try to make war with Klingons. Angry, like I don't know. Well, the, there's no one in this future that can make weapons except for. Hold up, we're missing one of the biggest fucking. Okay, the movie begins so problematically that it, it only makes sense that this is the plot of the movie because the one thing that they keep harping about in the beginning of this film, and it's something that's so fundamentally important to the lore of Star Trek, is the Federation's prime directive. Remember, the Federation is a benevolent force. It's it's a coalition of of so many species throughout the universe um, that are constantly meet, meeting new species and trying to integrate them in if they're ready for it. And if they're not ready for it, they watch them from a distance. And if that species should die from like some cataclysm, then that's just the way it is. They don't interfere. But it begins because Spock sees a planet of like uh, indigenous people who are just like really like. Like, they just, I guess they just started maybe a thousand years ago, and they're finally putting on tunics and painting their skin. And he's like, oh, but that fire, oh, that volcano's going to do them in. Wouldn't that be a shame? It's like, no, it wouldn't be a shame. If they die because of volcano, that's the way it is. It is your imperative to not interfere. And he does. And Kirk lets him. And while Kirk... I would say Kirk encourages. Here's the part that makes no sense, and they make no point whatsoever to explain it. 
Why are Kirk and Bones stealing scrolls from these people? Can you explain that to me? Yes, actually, I know why. Tell they, me why. Uh, what they did, they were disguised themselves, and they uh, they were trying to draw the people away from the volcano. That was the whole thing. He was trying to draw them away so that uh, while Spock did his uh, volcanic penetration to hmm. freeze the hot magma, mm. uh, that they would suffer uh, reduced casualties. Well, so what they were doing, what they did was... He's like, I don't know what this is, but they were bowing to it, and now they're chasing us, so we're doing a good job. Waka waka. Yeah. It's so stupid. What the hell did you take? I have no idea, but they were bowing to it. Kirk to shuttle one. Locals are out of the kill zone. You're clear. Repeat. Spock, get in there. Neutralize the volcano. Let's get out of here. I didn't understand that the first time. I understood it this time. I still didn't get it. I didn't get I was just like, you shouldn't even be here in the first place. Like... The only person who knows shit in this movie is Captain Pike. He's the only character in both of these movies who knows what time it is. Yep, and now he's murdered. And now he's murdered. So I, I if I could take a minute, because this is actually going to hold to a point that we're going to make throughout the rest of this episode, I, I would like to read the Prime Directive to you, if I may. Please do. All right, this directive, as found in the Articles of the Federation, Chapter 1, Article 2, Paragraph 7, states, quote, Nothing within these Articles of Federation shall authorize the United Federation of Planets to intervene in matters which are essentially the domestic jurisdiction of any planetary social system or shall require the members to submit such matters to settlement under these Articles of Federation. But this principle shall not prejudice the application of enforcement measures under Chapter 8 or Chapter 7. Now, Chapter 7 has exceptions in terms of enforcement which read like this, quote, as the right of each sentient species to live in accordance with its normal cultural evolution is considered sacred, no Starfleet personnel may interfere with the normal and healthy development of alien life and culture. Such interference includes introducing superior knowledge, strength, or technology to a world whose society is incapable of handling such advantages wisely. Starfleet personnel may not violate this prime directive even to save their lives and or their ship unless they are acting to right an earlier violation or an accidental contamination of said culture. This directive takes precedence over any and all other considerations and carries with it the highest moral obligation. End quote. Now, real quick. Yeah. I'd like to uh, officially, on this podcast, coronate you king of the nerds. Leave me alone. I wish everybody could have seen how many times you had to shove your glasses up oh, your that's... bridge of your nose. They, they slide when I get sweaty, and it made me sweaty to read that. <laughs> so, everything that I read there, they broke every rule in, in the Prime Directive. All of them. Now, of the highest moral obligation, wouldn't you say the appropriate punishment for that is a complete disbarment? From the Federation, Kirk, Spock, every member of the Enterprise is just dismissed at that point, if not detained. Would that not be a, a suitable justification? Because when they leave the planet, those that indigenous uh, culture... Did I say indigenous? Indigenous, you did. I'm so mad right now. As they leave the planet, these uh, people who aren't past the wheel stage, the Stone Age, see this gigantic spaceship fly out and they draw it into the things thus changing the course of their society forever that's broken there's no time travel in star trek unless you put q in it or whatever else but actually they did it in first contact but that's not the point they're not going back in time to fix this no they, uh here's the thing like you said earlier damon mm -hmm. lindelof 
uh, this, it's like the same thing as the beginning of Prometheus. It's like ancient aliens, space people, now they're going to become, you know, a problem down the line. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Thousands of years from now, they actually do get caught up. Also, I think the reason that James Kirk and his uh, ragtag crew never get in trouble for anything mm. is because, uh, like in the first movie, it's like, uh, well, what what happened when, you know, they uh, were left to their own devices, Captain Kirk, you know, uh, saved whatever. I haven't seen that movie in a while. But the point is, is like, eh, well, he got away with it that time and it worked out pretty well. Sets a dangerous precedent. That's right. Uh, you know, not every... Uh, Starfleet commander uh, is like essentially space uh, uh, I was going to say space Indiana Jones but we already have a name for that Han Solo yeah pretty much uh, which he pulls Han Solo moves in this movie I know uh, they make Kirk such a rogue and it's obnoxious like every decision he makes is the wrong one how bad is Kirk at being a captain he's the worst Oh, every, he's really bad at being a captain. Every decision he makes is the wrong one. He makes so many bad decisions. And people have to bail him out consistently. Pike dies because Kirk fucked up so bad they held a tribunal about... Oh, you know, that was no, about the John Harrison thing. The tribunal yeah, the yeah. tribunal was because you're right, of you're right. Uh, terror. Yeah, I want to blame it on Kirk. Trust me. I, if I could find a reason to blame Pike's death on Kirk, I would. Uh, well, I would say, if, if nothing else, like, uh, Pike could have done a... Or, excuse me, Kirk could have done a better job of like that brief moment of investigation where he senses something's wrong mm-hmm. and he's like well this seems to be a problem uh maybe that's a huge up. that's a huge leap of judgment there it's like oh he has a bag of bombs why would he just blow up a library why would blow up a library at all unless he wanted all of these people to sit in one room together and as he says it here here comes Khan. no no that's that's just bad screenwriting that's just like oh we need something to happen here because Pike and Kirk have been screaming at each other for the last 15 minutes. Oh, and also, that's not a library. Right? Well, it was an archives or something. That's, oh, no, no. That's, remember? Later, Khan's like, that's not we're library. Oh, right, because they were hiding, what? oh, plans for the super-duper black ship. Yeah. The, 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 the stealth enterprise. The Interceptor or whatever. <sighs> the Vengeance. It's got a dumb name. Oh, you want to talk about dumb. Finding a bigger ship to intimidate the the iconic ship it's like you've run out of ideas you ha- between these three guys who wrote this movie they have no ideas they're like well we need to sh- actually show that this uh somehow very vengeful and military military minded uh, uh admiral of the federation somehow he got that job uh uh, needs to put the fear of God into the Enterprise. How do we do that? We'll give him a giant ship that's black and has these two fuck you rail guns that'll come out and just blow him out of the goddamn cosmos. And Sounds good. Just, put it in there. And he's just gonna kill this entire ship full of people mm-hmm. uh, to incite war with the Klingons. Yeah. Which, for some reason, hasn't happened by the end of the movie. Uh, you know, now that I'm thinking about it... What? I think that this... Uh, Star Trek Into Darkness is those three writers' uh, mission statement on how they think 9-11 was an inside job. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, half the movie are false flags, Mm -hmm. and then there's an actual space version of 9-11 happens to future San Francisco, where countless innocent people just die because... 
dude's gonna crash his ship into the Enterprise headquarters. This is sure them. Uh, yeah, just because that he he's, probably sit off screen, and he's mad because he thinks all of his homies are dead because he just rushes to judgment. Mm-hmm. And he's just a crazy. He's just as dumb as that. He like Khan is such a non-entity in this movie. He exists because they couldn't say that uh, RoboCop was the villain out of the gate. Yeah, he exists to get the action going, and then when it's going, you really don't need him anymore. But he keeps popping up. Like, they make him buddies with Kirk for a minute, and they have that little space-flying moment where he saves him for no reason whatsoever. He could have let him smack across the hull of that ship, and nothing would have changed. He would have went right through the door, he would have killed Scotty, he would have killed his way to the captain, killed the captain, that's your movie. But because movie, mm-hmm. he lets Kirk live, and then uh, crushes Robocop's skull in his hands. Which, by the way, I know that Star Trek has bandied in, uh, like, a. Uh, body horror in the past but not like this never like this and and even if you're not if you're gonna do it why not commit to it there's no blood anywhere it's the most sanitized head smashing i've ever seen in my life and considering that we've seen uh game of thrones we know how satisfying that yes that can be i I don't think the word you were actually looking forward to was cathartic satisfying hey satisfying hey we all got our thing. That's Peter Weller. Uh, yeah, and, and guess what? Peter Weller can't act no more. Yeah. Oh, man, did, he, did you know they did the voice of Batman in the Dark Knight Returns animated movies? I didn't know that. You want to hear some shit, just watch that movie. He is so bad in it. He doesn't even try. He doesn't even try to do a Batman voice in it. He's just like, I'm Peter Weller, and uh, this is the weapon of the enemy, and we will not use it, and... Oh, where's my paycheck? Even if you got away without a trace, war is coming. And who is going to lead us? You? Uh, I mean, it's pretty suitable that his greatest performance was as a half-robot. Yeah. Well, uh, to move things along, let's talk about another useless facet to this. The Uhura-Spock romance that literally does nothing, goes nowhere, and does not progress in any tangible form by the end of the film. It's just there... To have a, a romance in there. This movie is obsessed with telling you that Spock has no emotions, has no feelings, and then trying to flip that. Well, they did a lot, a much better job in the first movie by, um, you know, we get to meet his human mother, played by Winona Ryder, and that sequence that he has with, you know, uh, Lydia Dietz yes. for like five minutes did more to drive home the point that Spock is conflicted by his human and Vulcan heritage than anything that happened in this movie. Everything he does is inherently logical, and he's often right 100% of the time. Is right 100% of the time. Like, there's no deterrence in his logic. He he always comes out on top. Where he falters is because he keeps kicking it with this dipshit California boy. Oh, excuse me, Ohio boy. uh, Iowa. Iowa. Making all these god-awful uh, decisions and then bailing him out of it. If he is showing any sort of like uh, a wavering in his relationship, it's because Ahura, it's not you, it's your captain. He's stressed out because your captain keeps putting him in life-or-death situations. They leave Scotty behind, and Scotty's one of the only uh, bright spots of this Star Trek incarnation, even though he, obviously, Simon Pegg, uh, was not having a blast with this one. It was a, a, an astronaut joke. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one highlight of the film, Carl Urban. Yeah. He's great. Bones is the best. 
we both love Carl Urban do? in just about everything. I do. Uh, still think that Dread uh, 3D, underrated. Might be worth a, a look again, I think. Damn it, man, I'm a doctor, not a torpedo technician. But in the meantime, I think we should probably get to wrapping this up. I have a question for you today, Bert, if you'd like to have it. I love questions. I, want, I have a question for you. Uh, go ahead. What is your query? Um, of all the Star Trek movies that exist, this is a simple one, which one did you enjoy more than Star Trek Into Darkness? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, uh, Generations and First Contact. You get one. Okay, Generations. Generations. I'm with you on that one. It's it's not the best movie, but nope. I but I love it. That's the one with the uh, what's his name too, right? Uh, Malcolm McDowell. That's it. Yes, my favorite bits when uh, Shatner says to Picard, he's like, "I was running a spaceship when you were when your grandparents were in diapers." He says diapers. Diapers. I remember that. Yeah, well, that's how that's how that word is pronounced. Yeah. By William Shatner. Yeah. I was running a ship while you were still in your diapers. Uh, what about you, Jared? What is your more highly favored Star Trek film? What came before? I mean, any movie that you're going to pick is just going to be better than Into Darkness, unless you're talking like Undiscovered Country, the... Nemesis? Uh, uh, Nemesis. Practically any movie that's not uh, the motion picture, First Contact... Rathacon or Search for Spock is just not going to be in this conversation. So Voyage, I, Voyage Home. No. Is that Wales? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, my favorite Star Trek movie, period, with a period, is First Contact. Even though they try to punch it up, up the action some, there is a reason. The Borg is a reason to fight. It is. They are the reason to fight. They're assimilating countless worlds. They have to be stopped. And then they implement time travel, which is awesome because James Cromwell was the guy who gave uh, who created Lightspeed Travel, but he was also in an episode of The Next Generation just playing some diplomat asshole. So I was like, wait, they still called him Jamie Cromwell back in those days. And, but he, then he, he shows up in the movie, and he's James Cromwell. So the little Star Trek geek in me really loved that. Uh, James Cromwell, uh, very famous for his uh, award-winning performance in that pig movie. Yeah, that one pig movie. That'll do, pig. I thought you were talking about SWAT. And that's all the time we have for this week's installment of Anti Monitor. Thank you so much for listening to us. Make sure to look us up on iTunes, rate and subscribe, let us know you're there, and find us on social media. We are on Twitter at DoomRocket underscore, Instagram, same handle. Bird Money over there, he is at Bird Money, believe it or not. I'm at Jared Jones underscore. And that's it. That's Bird. I'm Jared. Thank you again for listening, and from all of us at DoomRocket.com. May the force be with you.